what you have before training isn't breakfast, it's just that pre-training fuel. And then post-training, that's when, you know, you really want to look forward to that meal to, to celebrate the session and, you know, make it exciting. Protein, hopefully healthy fats, fiber, calcium, fruits and vegetables. And the world's your oyster in terms of, um, you know, getting adventurous and also starting the day well. Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. My name is Steph Gaskell. I'm an accredited sports dietitian, researcher and do some lecturing at Monash University in Melbourne. And I'm joined by my colleague and fellow sports dietitian lecturer and researcher, Dr. Alan McCubbin. How are you, Alan? Good, thanks, Steph. It's been a, uh, a funny old week. It's just just lockdown and school and that's about it, really. Um, <laughs> been some nice weather, though, in Melbourne. It's kind of that time of year where, you know, winter just starts to turn that little bit and you think, oh, you know, spring's on the way. And then, you know, the next day it's back to 14 degrees and raining. Um, yes. But, yeah, you get those sort of inklings and, you know, blossoms starting to form on trees and things like that. And you go, oh, yeah, winter's... Winter will be over soon, which is good. And obviously, you know, yeah. Paralympics. So, um, you know, yes. by the time everyone listens to this, the Paralympics will be underway. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. And have you been um, cycling with your son? You know, last time you were doing kind of like these loops and, and mm. he was wanting to get to 20Ks or something. Yeah, I haven't actually lately. Um, although it's been like nice sunny weather, it's also been incredibly windy, very gusty. Yeah. Um, yeah. Probably not the nicest for, for riding with an eight-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> fair, fair. Gets blown there's up other, his bike or just goes stuff. into this massive headwind or something. Yeah, other fun stuff he can do, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. He's been running around the ass, the local ass track actually a bit. I know. He's got up to, I think, one and a half Ks without stopping or maybe, maybe he did four full laps actually. I think he might have done 1,600. Jeez, that's yeah, all right. a mile. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's real good. Might yeah. have to have a competition going with um, your kids and maybe Ricardo's kids both doing little athletics. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Tilly's, uh, I think, a year and a bit older than William, so and she's been running uh, a bit longer, okay. so I think she'd have yeah. him covered at least for now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Cool. So I guess here on the Long Munch, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask. Um, and yeah, it can be the stuff that you talk about, you know, whether it be in training or after your training session, uh, it's, it's, um, it's things that I guess can also just be confusing and you might hear, you know, advice from peers or coaches or just, um, obviously the Google and internet searches can confuse all of us. So we, we try and really nut that out for you. Um, so break it down into pretty easy to understand stuff. And then um, so we'll have a uh, sort of guess expert in part A and then we'll have a part B, which is either like an athlete or coach's perspective. And that's trying to give a bit more practical information um, for, for our listeners to be able to use. Um, we are up to now today's episode, which is 19B. Um, and our question is, do I need more protein? 
Um, we've we've got an athlete that I believe you are either working with or are soon to be working with, Alan. So I'll let you introduce our um, our athlete, and he's kind of kind of a bit special in terms of, I guess, um, covering a couple of bases for us. Mm, yeah, well. Um... It's the para- as as we said at the start, you know, it's Paralympics at the moment, uh, and so I think it was it's great timing to have someone who is actually over in Tokyo for the Paralympics as we speak. We recorded this um, about a week before he left. Um, yeah. His name's David Bright. He's a para triathlete, and he's over there competing uh, this coming Sunday, actually, the 29th of August, um, mm. in his particular event. Uh, and I don't really work with with David. He um, he his coach Daniel Stefano uh, I work with, and, and some of the other athletes. But as you alluded to, he's got a couple of different hats because he's actually a sports dietitian himself as well as a triathlete. So yeah. he doesn't really need my help because he does his <laughs> his own uh, kind of nutrition yeah. planning. Um, occasionally we we sort of chat about a few things, but uh, yeah, definitely he can well and truly look after himself in that regard. So David's uh, based over in Perth normally, but uh, as I said, he's He's over in the um, in the village in Tokyo as we speak. Yeah, that's exciting. Mm. Exciting stuff. Yep. Awesome. Well, uh, shall we get cracking into it? Yeah, I think so. Um, let's uh, keep it short and sharp and, and get into the interview with David Bryant. Excellent. David Bryant, welcome to The Long Munch. How are things going over there in Perth? It's going great. First time caller, long time listener. So it's a pleasure pleasure to be on the show. Uh, lovely 24 degrees and sunny here. I was meant to fly out to Tokyo last Sunday, but various COVID issues have delayed my departure until this Friday. So I couldn't be happier because I love my little bubble here back in Perth. Yeah, fair enough. Good place to be at the moment. And uh, yeah, first time call, long time listener. You're one of our reviews on Apple Podcasts too. So big thanks to thanks to you for that. Um, now, obviously, you're just days away, as you said. Um, you meant to leave last week, uh, and that sort of fell through. But um, I believe you're leaving on Friday to head off uh, to Tokyo for the Paralympics. For those who uh, are not sort of familiar with uh, para sports and how the whole sort of classification scheme works, and uh, and I guess para triathlon specifically, which is your event, um, do you want to tell us a little bit about um, the sort of the classification system that works across the sports and then paratriathlon specifically in terms of the event and the distances and that kind of thing? Yeah, so we'll start off with the distances because that's definitely the easy part. Um, Our distances are 750-metre swim, a 20K ride and a 5K run. And, you know, the inside word is that that distance will also be the distance for the elite athletes come Paris. Um, And our race is all over in about an hour or so. Um, Triathlon Australia is sort of predicting my um, race, uh, a gold medal or thereabouts, to be about 57 minutes. So it's a pretty intense 57 minutes or thereabouts. And coming from an Ironman background, whereby you're racing for 10 or so hours and, you know, you're trying to be measured all day and basically stay in your box to now racing as hard as I can for an hour and sort of letting go um, has probably been the biggest shift um, in terms of making that transition. In terms of the classification system, there's five classes and I guess the obvious classes is the wheelchair classes and the um, vision impaired. Um, But even those two classes are split into, you know, how vision impaired you are or um, how much function you have down your spine. Um, 
my class, I guess you could say, is a bit of a bits of class. Um, we're the most able-bodied class. Um, and the best way to describe my class is I'm, I'm basically racing guys that have a below sort of elbow amputation. So I'll race a lot of guys without a hand or, you know, missing quite a few fingers. And then there is a few guys like myself who have leg impairments. And I have a club foot. Um, and over the years, my club foot just didn't develop as much as my left leg, my stronger leg. So I've got a three size shoe difference, an inch and a quarter leg length difference, and about a 20% difference in muscle mass. Um, so paratriathlon is pretty new to uh, the Paralympics. Um, it made its debut in Rio. Um, and yeah, over the last sort of eight years, you know, they've, they've worked pretty hard to get the classification right. So that's fair for everyone. I narrowly missed out on classification for Rio after being classified and then declassified, but that, that's another story. Um, but fast track to sort of 2019, I was finally classified and put onto the um, Elite Triathlon Australia team. And it's been a pretty whirlwind two to three years um, in terms of being thrown into the elite environment. Um, I've been lucky enough to have Daniel Stefano as coach. And yeah, pre-COVID, I guess you could say I was living the dream traveling around the world, racing at um, amazing locations. And um, the great thing about being in paratriathlon is how inclusive inclusive it is with um, the elite athletes. So we get to train and um, hang out with the elite athletes as well. So, yeah, it's been an amazing journey. And I got so lucky squeezing in a few key races uh, pre the COVID pandemic, um, which was enough to qualify me for Tokyo. So, um, haven't raced in 18 months, um, but I think it's worked in my favor because, um, yeah, it's, it's allowed for a really good build up. Mm, yeah, for sure. And I know exactly what you've been about that nice mix with training. Um, like obviously, you know, I work with, with Danielle as well and, and the, the guys and girls that are based in Melbourne and, and, you know, you've been across here a bit as well. And it's, it's a great group to, to, um, spend, spend time with, um, as you said, a, a mixture of, um, para guys and, and able bods um, all sort of training together really well which is, is great to see um, and so it sounds like from what you're saying before like you had an Ironman background so that was just a sport that you got involved with um, more as like an age grouper and then that the para opportunity came along with with Rio is that sort of how it worked for you yeah and I guess I was kind of interested from a sports dietitian as well I wanted to do an Ironman just to see what it was all about and see if I could apply my nutrition knowledge and yeah, from a sports dietitian point of view, um, it was probably the best thing I ever did, not in terms of, uh, not only in terms of what I learned, but I remember doing a um, post-race nutrition report about the day that I had. Um, I was very lucky that I had a good day. I went nine hours, 19 on debut, and I just thought I'd do this post-race nutrition report on my Catalyst Dietitian Facebook page, and I kept it pretty simple. I thought the foods I, I ate were, you know, pretty unexciting and uneventful, but um, got a few shares to the point where um, 30,000 people viewed that post. And, you know, basically since then, um, I've been doing sports nutrition consults all around the world just from that one post. And I guess back in, well, I, whatever it was, 2016 or whatever, that was the time where you could um, organically get that many Facebook views, whereas now the only way to um, get 30,000 hits on Facebook is to pay Facebook. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, and so what got you sort of taking another step back? What sort of got you interested in, in um, becoming a dietitian and specifically in, in sport in the first place? 
Yeah, I was re- reflecting on this question before. Um, I just grew up around food. Um, my dad's a massive foodie and, you know, my childhood memories is my dad always getting family friends over and having big cook-ups on the weekend and buying beautiful produce. And, yes, yeah, so I always appreciated food as a kid. And um, I moved over to Perth first year out of school and could say I didn't really know anyone. So all I really had at the time was, was running. Um, and I started my course at UWA studying commerce because I thought I liked business at the time and failed uh, microeconomics miserably. It's the only thing I think I've ever failed from an academic perspective. Um, and in the semester I had off first year out of school, I did my personal training course and really loved that. And one of the course coordinators was studying um, nutrition and dietetics at ECU. And all of a sudden, it just all made sense and everything clicked. So um, it's been an awesome journey the last sort of 10 to 12 years. Um, and I absolutely love what I do as a sports dietitian. And I'm just so grateful that the career I'm in now as a elite para triathlete sort of translates to what I'm doing as a sports dietitian as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You get to use yourself as, as your own case study, awesome. which is awesome. Um, so in terms of you, your work as a sports dietitian, do you mainly work with other triathletes or is it a whole range of different sports? Yeah, you could say my niche over here is uh, the endurance world, um, but I do see a lot of other athletes in various sports. As you guys would know, it only takes you to see one rower and then they talk and all of a sudden you're, you're, you're um, <laughs> assisting heaps of rowers. Um, so that's what I love about sports dietetics. It's so diverse. You know, I've worked with the WA equestrian team, boxers, sailing. Um, yeah, it's ever changing and it's always um, keeping you on your toes. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Uh, so, um, yeah, last week um, we uh, we spoke about about protein, and so we spoke about that in relation to endurance athletes. Um, but today we'll focus on how that translates into meals and snacks. So, I guess firstly, is protein something that you're conscious of? on a day-to-day basis when you're making food choices? I guess we know that it very likely is, but um, yeah, can you expand on that for our listeners? I'm so glad I'm the part B of the episode, not the part A, because I'm definitely a a very practical dietitian rather than the scientific side of things. Um, Yeah, protein's definitely at the forefront of my mind um, on any day. Um, And you know, myself as an athlete, but if I am um, treating clients, it's it's all about that protein distribution. Um, as you guys would know, it's, it's, it's relatively difficult to not get enough protein in the day if you're, you know, eating sensibly. Um, but most athletes don't really distribute protein um, very well. And, you know, the analogy I give is the old Vegemite on toast for breakfast, obviously not much protein there. A muesli bar for morning tea, not a lot of protein there. Grab a salad sandwich for lunch with maybe a slither of ham in it. Again, not a huge amount of protein there. Maybe a piece of fruit in the afternoon, not much protein there. And then at dinner time, because they want to maximize their muscle gains, it's a big 300 gram steak. Um, so, yeah, it's all about protein distribution for me to maximize um, growth and recovery, um, but also satiety as well. Yeah, yeah. And then I guess in terms of that um, distribution, 
Uh, is there, though, perhaps a sort of a bullmark amount that um, you would aim for then in each of those meals? So, you know, is there kind of a bit of a an amount that you're going for at breakfast, at lunch, at dinner, and let's say at post-session? Yeah, loosely loosely speaking, 20 to 30 grams of protein. Um, and, you know, from a practical point of view, I guess 150 grams of of meat. Um, but that's about as complex as I like to get or a quarter of your plate. Um, yeah, I just I just try to keep food as practical as possible. Um, I, was with, I was listening to the part A part of this podcast and, you know, the, the 0.2 to 0.3 grams per kilo of your body weight seemed to be the... Um, the the best piece of evidence and yeah if you do the maths for most people that's going to be about 20 to 30 grams of protein yeah so um often uh, as we all sort of find um as you said uh we tend to find people can struggle with getting the the protein in um at at breakfast and lunch and um, maybe that's because they're busy um and sometimes that's perhaps because they don't you know always know how much protein is in certain foods uh so yeah why do you find uh the reason why people are struggling to get that in at breakfast and i guess how do you kind of approach that then um with either yourself or with the people that you're working with in terms of giving them nice, easy ways to um, prompt them to get that protein in for, for brekkie or lunch? So probably my number one saying in nutrition is to front end the day and how every meal sets yourself up for better choices and outcomes at the next meal. Um, as I say to elite athletes, to weekend warriors, to sedentary office workers, to busy parents, it's it's very rare, if ever, that I've told someone they're having too much for brekkie. And most of the time, if you're getting breakfast right from a performance and recovery point of view, but also how you feel mentally and also the choices that you make late, later in the day are, are going to improve. Um, and I'm all about, um, you know, fueling for the work required. So that pre-training fuel is to be quite simple and carbohydrates and I always iterate to athletes that what you have before training isn't breakfast it's just that pre-training fuel and then post-training that's when you know you really want to look forward to that meal to to celebrate the session and you know make it exciting um I had a competition um in the first COVID lockdown last year about toast toppers um whereby it had to include had to include an element of protein hopefully healthy fats fiber calcium fruits and vegetables and you know if you apply those concepts you know the world's your oyster i love um sourdough bread for its digestibility and how satisfying it is and yeah you can get as adventurous as you like with toast toppers such as you know ricotta cheese with tomato bruschetta olive oil herbs that sort of thing or maybe a sweet option such as cottage cheese peanut butter banana honey um avocado eggs smoked salmon as I said, the world's your oyster in terms of, um, you know, getting adventurous and also starting the day well. Yeah. So do you have any sort of favourite, you know, loves for brekkie or a love for, um, you know, post-training um, meals that contain that protein? Yeah, all the ones that we just mentioned um, in terms of those sourdough toast toppers, Um 
And another reason I, I say it's pretty, it's, I've never told someone they're having too much for breakfast is because generally speaking, most endurance athletes, their key session is going to be that first one, first thing in the morning. And if they are to do a second session later in the morning or in the day, you really want to maximize your ability to back up that session with a good brekkie. Um, probably my most popular recipe that I give out to athletes and clients is my birch and muesli recipe. Um, it's great because if you make it the night before, it's ready to go the next day and it's really portable. Um, so you can just keep it all in a Tupperware overnight and then athletes can keep it in their bag and have it ready to eat on the run post-training. Um, but it's a really balanced meal. You know, if you soak it in yogurt, fruit, nuts, um, that sort of thing overnight, it's also going to really swell. Um, so therefore the oats are going to be much more satiating when you have it the next day. So yeah, I get people addicted to the, uh, the birch and muesli and I try to pr promote, um, variety at breakfast. Um, but most of the time people are happy just to stick to birch and muesli all year round. And I guess in terms of dinner, it's, as we spoke about, it tends to be one of the easiest ones to, I guess, imagine in terms of getting sufficient protein. But what about if you've had, you know, a long period between main meals? Would you deliberately choose a snack for its protein content? In terms of like an afternoon tea? Yeah. Yeah, and that's another big mistake I see athletes make is have nothing between uh, lunch and dinner. And, you know, when you draw it um, in front of them in terms of in terms of a timeline of events from lunch to dinner, you know, we could be talking five, six, seven, eight hours between lunch and dinner, not to mention in that key sort of four or five-hour period around 5 p.m. in the afternoon, they're trying to, you know, um, achieve a high-intensity session. So, yeah, that afternoon tea is really important and that afternoon tea is going to be dictated by the type of session that you're doing. So if it is, say, a Tuesday night high-intensity running interval session, we probably don't need to worry about protein too much there and have a couple of slices of toast with very simple toast toppers such as Vegemite, jam, honey, that sort of thing. Um, but if it is an easier session in the afternoon or they don't have any training in the afternoon, that's when I encourage um, their afternoon tea to be more nutritious and potentially a lower carb approach with a greater protein emphasis, you know, such as yogurt. I don't mind a protein bar or protein shake these days just because they're convenient. And I know that a athlete or a client is more likely to have that because they just need to open their office drawer and it's, it's ready to go. I'm a big fan of vegetable and chicken or whatever that may be soup this time of year as well. Um, it's not only, not only going to keep them warm, but it's also very satisfying being hot and um, savoury as well. Yeah. And what about in terms of, I guess, thinking about your um, during exercise intake, um, would you ever have um, quite long sessions? I guess this is in relation potentially to your Ironman type of training. Um, do you ever then consider during your long training sessions to take on board protein? Yeah, I I listened to the Part A podcast with interest about the use of protein um, in training. And I think you're naturally going to crave a little bit of protein in your longer sessions. So for a long bike ride whereby you are riding three, four, five six hours in the hills, um, it's fair to say you're going to get sick of gels and sports drink if you're just having nothing but that for the whole um, duration. So 
Um, if athletes do have sort of general, easier, yet long duration rides, for example, that's when I encourage a more wholesome food approach, it being sandwiches, pikelets, um, scones, you know, maybe a, a sports bar with a little bit of protein, a little bit of fat, a little bit of fiber to promote satiety. Um, yeah, and basically just keep them happy for the three, four, five, six hour ride because the last thing you want to be is uh, hungry on those long rides. Mm, yeah. Um, and do you do that yourself or you haven't kind of felt you needed to? Yeah, for sure. I try to I try to eat food as much as I can on those long rides. Um if it is a higher intensity brick session, such as I'm going to run hard off the bike or, you know, the bike session does have quality, that's when I have a more simple approach to my bike nutrition in terms of keeping it pretty low fat, low fiber to reduce the risk of gut upset. Um, but if it's just a general long ride, I'll make the most of um, having a food first approach, um, such as my my banana bread, which is much more satisfying and enjoyable to eat than, a say, a gel. Oh, I wonder if he's in competition with the banana bread, Alan, with, um, is that Leah? Leah does a good banana bread. Oh, Leah Kirchman. Yeah, we spoke to a few weeks back. Well, I'm, I'm surprised you haven't mentioned it, but I was on um, Recipe to Riches Channel 10 show with my banana bread. Thought I was going to get world famous with that TV show, but obviously not. Well, oh, we're wondering where our delivery is. <laughs> it was it was reality TV at its best. Uh, Recipe to Riches. I'm sure everyone listening now remembers it um, about five years ago. But the um, the intrigue with this show was um, whether these recipes that you had were translatable to the to the Woolworth shelves. And um, the the reality side of thing came in, whereby the contestant had to see if they could produce reproduce their their recipe um to the hundredth or two hundredth so my task was to produce 180 loaves of banana bread in three hours um so you can imagine how much eggs yogurt flour bananas and everything else was flying around the kitchen um and then the judges chose the winner um from that episode and then the next day the winning um dish would be on the woolworth shelf so it was about five years ago, and I think the um the founder of Carmen's was the um was one of the hosts back then. But yeah, clearly it mm. didn't um it wasn't as popular as I thought because yeah, you guys don't look like you remember the Channel Ten TV show at all. <laughs> it's, it's funny when you described the program, I'm like, oh, I do remember that now. Yeah, yeah, it was a bloody sausage that beat me, unfortunately. Bloody <laughs> 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 uh, sausage. Um, and you're gonna you're gonna have some banana bread tucked away to take to Tokyo with you. Oh, I'm hoping that the uh, Paralympic Australia dietitian has some sort of banana bread available, um, just well, to I keep can, things same I can same. Talk, I can talk to <laughs> them, um, Dave. Um, I, I've seen Olivia Warns is going over there to help Siobhan, and um, I've seen the very impressive aprons that Siobhan's made for them. So. I'll, um, I'll talk to Liv and I'll let her know there's requests for, for banana bread. Do you want to give me the recipe and I can send it to her? Oh, no problem at all. I don't <laughs> think I'll starve over there, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, th I thought you might just be taking a leaf out of Emma's book. So Emma Jeffcoat that we had on an earlier episode, she took a massive stack of crumpets and a couple of jars of Biscoff with her over there and uh, then topped up on the Biscoff. I think she got a, a bit of a delivery when she was in Howard Springs quarantine on the way back, which I think she just left there today, actually, to come back 
to Melbourne. Yeah, Emma and I have been talking most days pre and post the Olympics, and she's given me given me the rundown, mostly all food related, nothing to do with races, that's for sure. <laughs> of course. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> what else is there to, to have a rundown on, really? Right. Um, on, on that topic, um, with the Paralympics, I'm assuming you guys, do you use the same um, like apartment tower that they used for the Olympics? Yeah, exactly the same. And um, my coach, Danielle Stefano, has been setting it all up, helping the um, the team out the last few days, rolling out the red carpet for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, awesome. <laughs> cool. Um, so obviously we talked about sort of breakfast, dinner. We, we missed lunch, actually. What are your sort of your go-tos in terms of, um, you know, ensuring you get enough protein at lunchtime? Massive on cooking extras at dinner time. It's it's such an easy task just to cook that little bit extra, and it just makes life so much easier the next day. If um you know all you have to do is open a Tupperware and hopefully have um some appropriately portioned uh, leftover meat. Um and again, lunch is largely going to be determined by the training you've done that morning. Um. But particularly the afternoon, um, if, if I don't have much on in the afternoon, that's where I'll make lunch as adventurous as possible from a from a fibre, from a vegetable salad point of view. Um, but if it is a higher intensity session, that's when we want to keep things quite simple and, yeah, as always, taper off that fat protein or not so much protein, but fibre in particular so that we don't get any gut issues um, at 5pm doing the, that high intensity session. Mm. Yeah. Cool. Um, and when you finish training, I mean, obviously, depending on the time of day that you're training depends, obviously, whether it, you know, it, it rolls sort of directly into a, a meal time or not. Um, do you ever have times where you sort of finish training, but it's not really naturally a meal time? And if so, do you sort of deliberately add anything in extra as a snack at that time to get some protein in post-training or do you just wait till the next meal? And so the best scenario I can give is my swim routine whereby I swim at the WA Institute of Sport. And because I'm at the facility, um, I try and kill two birds with one stone and get my gym session done because, yeah, if I plan a gym session later in the day separately, I'll, I'll just never get it done. So that's my way of uh, stacking things on top of each other. And just to, you know, get on top of that gym session as quick as I can, that's when I actually will use um, a protein powder. And uh, we're lucky enough at the WA Institute of Sport to have a fully stocked up kitchen. Um, so I will um, use use milk to the protein powder, quickly grab a banana, and then straight into the gym session. Um, because, yeah, it's, you know, four or five K of swimming, it's fair to, fair to say I've depleted my carbohydrate stores and want to get that recovery process going. And I also want to make sure that I'm actually moving well in the gym. A lot of the times I see swimmers um, sort of doing the same thing and just going straight from uh, swim to gym. But if, you've, if you're not refueling post-swim, pre-gym, you know, the movements you're going to be making in the gym are going to be pretty poor. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, uh, and the other, um, I guess, timing of the day where we might consider protein, we actually... Uh, didn't get around to talking about this in the, the previous episode, but is sort of overnight before you go to bed, because obviously that's going to be the longest period of the 24-hour cycle where you're not eating or drinking anything is that overnight period when you're asleep. Um, and there is, I guess, some research, probably more around strength training, looking at deliberately having a, a protein snack before bed, particularly if dinner is you know quite earlier in the evening. Um, is that something that you sort of incorporate into your own training plan or not really? Most definitely, um, particularly on big training days, 
um, you know, for elite athletes in particular, um, meeting your energy and protein requirements through just three, three square meals a day is, is very difficult. So, you know, I think dessert often gets demonized, but for an elite athlete or someone that's training long or at a relatively high level, you know, dessert's another opportunity just to top up protein, calcium, and even potentially carbohydrate stores so that whilst you're sleeping, you know, you're drip feeding your muscles with fuel. So um, in an ideal world, if an athlete doesn't have a dairy intolerance, I try to recommend an athlete having a, a dairy-based dessert um, and to, if anything, you know, enjoy a bit of ice cream, for example, on their big training days because it's not only going to provide that little bit of protein and calcium but also contribute towards energy. Um Potentially, if it's an easier training day, um, that's when I'd lean towards the yogurt. And even if they think they're lactose intolerant, to still try a bit of yogurt and sort of see how their gut tolerates it being naturally low in lactose. Yep. Cool. All right. Well, let's talk now a bit, I guess, about you know the potential benefits of, of doing all these things. We talked about sort of what and, and how much and that kind of thing. Um, and, and there may not be a, a time, but was there a time sort of earlier on in your sort of sporting career where you didn't necessarily consume that sort of regular protein across the day, but you were still training a fair bit and then you sort of changed that up and added those proteins in? Or were you sort of already aware of that stuff before you started doing pretty serious training? It sounds so simple, but, you know, protein distribution probably has been the the, the, the biggest game changer for me. Um, training 20, 25 hours a week, you know, I just felt like an empty pit and I was, I was never satisfied. Um, and once I just sort of made that active thought of trying to make sure that it was an element of protein at every meal not only not only just breakfast lunch and dinner but also those in-between meals morning tea afternoon tea and dessert um it made it kept me fuller for longer and yeah i think it definitely you know increased my ability to back up sessions um and you know loosely loosely speaking if you are training at a high level or often i think it's pretty hard to do damage with you know too much protein as long as you're being sensible about it there's only added benefits to spreading that protein across the day and i just don't think people think about evenly distributing protein across the day you know probably the number one question i get asked is am i getting enough protein and nine times out of ten the short answer is yes um but are you distributing it um well across the day and again nine times out of ten usually they aren't yeah, definitely. And that certainly be my experience as well. And, and I'm sure Steph, probably yours too. Yeah, definitely. Yep. <clears throat> yep. Okay. Um, now you mentioned, you know, sometimes you might use like a protein shake or a supplement or something like that at times. And it sounds like it's more a, a convenience kind of thing where you, um, either because, you know, you're in the gym and, you know, it's just, easier to get it done that way and, and move on to the next thing you're doing, um, rather than necessarily because that product is going to be superior to, you know, the chicken or the yogurt or whatever it is by the sound of it. Yeah. And I even use it as a convenience thing when I've got back to back, um, clients, um, at clinic in yep. the afternoon. Um, again, it's quick, it's easy in between clients. All I need to do is add a bit of water or milk. I can quickly drink it and off I go. So yeah, mm. added, added benefits and yeah, you can apply it in many different ways. Yep. Yeah, for sure. And do you have any particular type, not, not so much brand, but like 
uh, food source that goes into that protein, like do you go for whey protein or just whole milk protein or egg or you know whatever it is? Yeah, I, I keep it pretty simple. I just go a, a whey-based protein. Um, being a lead athlete, I have to make sure that my protein's batch tested. So that's something that I do um, make sure um, just to give me peace of mind more than anything. Um, you know, often I'm getting a, a knock on the door from the drug testers these days. And yeah, there's nothing worse sort of second guessing that protein supplement that you've been having that hasn't been batch tested. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Um, and you've talked about, I guess, so your whey protein obviously comes from, from milk or dairy. Uh, you've got your know, yogurts, your meat and chicken and, and that kind of thing. Uh, are there times where you have sort of um, plant-based protein sources as well that sort of fit into your diet in some shape or form? Yeah, I try to add as many legumes and lentils to the vegetable and salad dishes I make. Um, and again, from a practical point of view, um, you know, I probably get a little bit more adventurous with adding legumes and lentils on my easier training days. Um, you know, for example, you asked about lunch before. If if I don't have any training in the afternoon, that's where I feel quite comfortable adding legumes and lentils to my meal to bump up the protein, promote satiety again, increase my fiber intake as well, and you know, not have to worry about potentially getting gut issues later in the day because I'm doing a hard run or that sort of thing. So. As long as you're being sensible with, you know, how you're adding in plant protein sources such as the legumes and lentils, um, it's beneficial whether you're a vegetarian athlete or not. Yep, yep, fair enough. Um, and finally, to finish up with, um, I guess we talked about probably already the the advice that you would give to you know the athletes that you work with around protein. Um, other than the distribution, is there any other sort of common mistakes that you see athletes make around sort of their protein intake? Variety is the first one that springs to mind. Um, you know, a lot of people just get in the habit of, you know, meat, uh, not meat, um, chicken and fish on repeat, um, which are great. Um, they have, you know, multiple benefits, but a lot of the time athletes do sort of forget about the benefits of red meat from a, a B12 and an iron perspective. And as you guys would know, it's very difficult to meet your iron stores um, iron requirements as an, uh, as an endurance athlete. Um, and red meat is by far our best source in terms of our ability to absorb iron. So on my easier training days, that's when I like to get a bit more red meat in because the research seems to su suggest that, you know, we potentially absorb it better when we don't have that hepcidin response post training. Um, and it's probably, you know, just that little bit more difficult to digest as well after a harder training session. So yeah, I, I do encourage uh, red meat on your easier training days for various practical and scientific reasons. Yep. Yep. For sure. And if people want to hear more about, um, iron specifically, they can go back to episode 8A with, um, Professor Pete Peeling, who I'm sure you probably know from Western Australian Institute of Sport over there in yep. Perth. Mm -hmm. Yep. I, I sure do. The leader in iron. Yep, absolutely. Okay, well, I think we have come to our bonus round now where we find out a little bit more about you, Dave, outside of um, you know, sport and, um, and uh, your protein habits. Um, you mentioned before that you sort of moved over to Perth um, after, after school to, to go to uni. Where was home for you before Perth? I was born on the Gold Coast um, and moved around a lot. Um, I was lucky enough to live in Sydney, 
during the Olympics, which certainly planted the seed for my passion for Olympics today. But I went to school um, predominantly in Brisbane at St. Joseph's Nudgee College and, yeah, a big all-boys sporting school. Um, and the story I always tell about my journey in terms of getting into endurance sports was um, when I was 15, I had an operation on my left knee, my, my, my good leg, because it was growing too much um, compared to my right. And just for rehab, I started doing 20-minute jogs um, uh, to, to rehab that knee. And then when I was in grade 12, the, the top 12 runners of the school got presented in front of the school with a T-shirt, a singlet to go represent the school at the All Schools Cross Country. I got that 12th singlet um, scraped in and that really planted the seed for my passion for running. And then when I did move over to Perth, um, slowly got into triathlon because it's such a big triathlon culture over here. So, yeah, it's funny, you know, how things work out and those those sliding doors moments because, um, yeah, whilst Queensland certainly has the climate for triathlon, I don't think I would have fallen into triathlon if it wasn't for the, um, the, the environment over here in Perth. Mm, and so many great places to train over there as well for yeah. swim, bike and run. Oh, yeah. Living the dream. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, so you mentioned, obviously, you know, you've had that background racing Ironman. Obviously, you, you've gone much shorter distance now for, for Paratri because that's the distance for the, for the Paralympics. Um, but overall, do you have a particular preference for the longer or the shorter stuff? Initially, I didn't like sprint. Um, I, I guess you could say I didn't like the hurt. Um, <laughs> but I've, I've, I've grown to love, um, yeah, how specific sprint triathlon is and, yeah, how it's not not only a, a physical challenge but also a mental challenge and having that faith that you can hold that intensity for the, the 750 swim, the 20K bike and the 5K run. I'm, I'm still training as much, if not more, um, for a one-hour race um, than I was for a 10-hour race. Um, but, yeah, who knows what, what uh, distance I'll fall into post um post Tokyo um, but they're certainly very different that's for sure the the sprint versus the Ironman yep do you feel ripped off that you're doing the same amount of training for a tenth of the racing yeah. a little bit I guess you could say um, <laughs> I'm a little it's a little bit more serious now and there's a little bit more mm. um, up for grabs um, so I certainly won't be ripped off uh, feeling ripped off if I've got a medal around my neck sitting in a hotel quarantine in a few weeks time that's for sure yeah, exactly right. And I guess the other difference is you probably race more frequently as well, even though the distance is shorter, um, you can do it more often. Yeah, you do have to put a lot of eggs in one basket. You know, realistically, you can only do one or two Ironmans a year and there's a lot on the line. Whereas a sprint triathlon, um, you know, you've pretty much got a free hit each race because there's going to be a not, uh, another race um, not long after that. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, now, obviously, you know, the, uh, the Olympics, uh, we're sort of in that period now when the Olympics has come and gone and the Paralympics are, are soon to start. Um, thinking ahead to, to your time in Tokyo, and uh, you'll be there by the time people are listening to this, are there any particular athletes uh, that, that are going to Tokyo also for the Paralympics that you're, you're really interested to meet that you haven't met before? I'd love to meet Kurt, Kurt Fernley. Um, I've followed his journey since, I think, Sydney 2000. I remember going to the Sydney Paralympics um, as a school group and watching him compete. I remember him crawling Kokoda um, on TV and, and being just absolutely inspired. 
and I love listening to his podcast. I love um, that he's now presenting, uh, I think it's One Plus One on ABC. Um, yeah, very inspirational guy. Hopefully he's in uh, Tokyo, but um, maybe COVID restrictions don't allow. We'll soon find out. Um, and is there another sport that you haven't done before, but you've always wanted to try? You just haven't had the, the opportunity? I'd like to get back into surfing. Um, growing up in Queensland, I love bodyboarding in particular, and I I used to get up at 3, 4 a.m. and drive from Brisbane to Gold Coast to be in the water before sunrise. Um, and then when I moved over to Perth, I, I looked at the map and saw that I was, you know, 5K from, from the beach and thought, you beauty, I'm going to be in the water every day. Unbeknownst to me, in summer, there's pretty much no swell in Perth. And then um, in winter, when there is swell, it's it's bloody freezing and even walking across the sand, your, your, your feet go numb. So, um, yeah, I'd love to get back into surfing one day. But, yeah, with uh, swim bike run still um, full steam ahead and now that I have a 18-month-old Audrey, um, yeah, time is pretty precious, that's for sure. Yep. Yep. I mean, we're down in Melbourne, so I think bloody freezing is a bit relative to <laughs> And then we had Dan Moore last week, who's in Toronto. So, yeah, uh, I don't know I'd ever call Perth bloody freezing, but I'm sure it can get that way if, you, if you're not wearing enough clothes. Yeah. Um, any uh, piece of advice or motto that you live by? Opportunity only dances with those on the dance floor. Um, you know, I... You know, I was talking to my psychologist yesterday um, in prep for Tokyo and I said that I'm not talented and he sort of yelled back at me saying, you are talented, your talent is hard work. So, yeah, um, I would never have gotten to where I am today if it wasn't for putting myself out there and, and just showing up. And, you know, if you show up every day, um, you, the results are going to come your way. So keep dancing. My wife finds it pretty interesting that that's my motto because she always struggles to get me on the dance floor at parties. But, um, yeah, that's my that's my motto. Yeah, well, maybe you need a climate chamber to do it because I've seen uh, some of the sessions that you and M did in the climate chamber when you were over here. And, mm. uh, yeah, you're certainly going flat stick in there in some pretty awful condition. I was just standing in there and I didn't like it and you guys were running flat chamber. Yeah, I worked out. I worked out the other day, I've been in the heat chamber for two years um, because we did the test event two years ago and we were in the heat chamber for that and been in and out of the heat chamber for two years. And yeah, music definitely gets you through the heat chamber. I think the day that um, you were in the heat chamber with us, we were doing two race simulations and for whatever reason in the first uh, race simulation, we forgot to turn music on and that was pretty brutal just running and riding up and down on the spot in the 50 degree apparent temp room. Um, and then that second race we did with the music pump and it um, certainly was mentally more stimulating, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, and the final question, we haven't asked this actually for a while, Steph. Um, what's one thing that you have to take with you when you're traveling for races? It's my coffee French press. Um, and I don't mean to sound like a coffee hipster. I don't take the... I don't, don't take the grinder and the, all the fancy coffee machines or anything like that. It's just my simple French press. Um, and I'm really into cold brew at the moment. Again, it's not the fancy drip cold brew and with all the contraptions and all that. Um, I literally just put a couple of tablespoons of coffee in the French press and pour cold water into the into the cup and then just sit it in the fridge overnight and then just plunge in the morning and if you get the right coffee beans it's absolutely divine 
Um, and when I did the training camp with Triathlon Australia with the um, Olympic and Paralympic athletes, um, yeah, word got out that my my cold brew was pretty good. And three, four weeks later, I got through a kilo of coffee beans. So, yeah, there's there's nothing better than waking up to a good um, coffee. And when you're traveling all the time, you, you certainly can't live off the sachet um, instant coffee. So, yeah, it makes me feel like home to wake up each morning and, and have a cold brew. I'll definitely be doing a cold brew in um, Japan being so hot, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. I think, Steph, it was Ellie Pashley who said that she had to take her AeroPress with her everywhere as well. Yeah, I can't remember, yeah, who it was, but someone, yeah, definitely someone else did say say the AeroPress. So, yeah, I got yeah. given an AeroPress, but it was a bit intimidating for me. It looked a bit too complicated. So, yeah, I just take my French <laughs> press and I even made the effort of getting a, um, a beaker cup that was plastic so that I can put it in my... Um, luggage and have the peace of mind that when i when i do get to my destination my 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 beloved french press hasn't smashed so yeah i'm getting pretty organized these days with what to do when traveling yeah it yep. might be a awesome. triathlete thing actually because um nath who we also had on um nath shearer who we spoke to about beer um mm -hmm. he loves the um the the air well aeropress and takes that when he's traveling as well so maybe it's a triathlete thing well, we do live for coffee, um, you know. As I say, I, I always enjoy that fourth coffee of the day. Mm, yep, yep. <laughs> yeah, so I remember having lunch with you guys uh, after that heat session and I can't remember which coffee it was, number four or five for the day. Yeah, well, usually it means training's done for the day. <laughs> yeah, you don't have a time where you kind of have to stop coffee because it's going to affect your sleep? I do, Um because of my family and work situation, whereby I, you know, run my own sports dietetic clinic most afternoons, um, it's not uncommon for me to do four sessions in a morning. Um, so tomorrow is a good example. For example, um, I'll I'll run at four fifty a.m. I've got my own four fifty a.m. run club. No one wants to join. Um, surprise, surprise! But that's my Strava <laughs> upload every day. And then I'm so in the it's pool. Just you in this run club. Yeah, but that's my that's my um, Strava title, 0450 okay. Club, um, and I've yep. been doing that for about two years. Um, yep. So, yeah, put a podcast on like you guys and off I run. Um, yep. And then 7 o'clock, I'm, I'm in the pool, um, and then 8.30, 9 o'clock, I'm in the gym, and then lately, 10.30, I'm, I'm in the heat chamber, and then come 11.30, that's usually when I have my fourth coffee, um, and then I'm done for the day training-wise, and off to work or looking after Audrey with my wife, I go. So it's it's pretty full on, but um, yeah, I, I probably wouldn't have it any other way. I'm a, I'm a real morning person and I like getting it done. And I also think there's something in, you know, switching off mentally in the afternoon as well, um, because if you are training morning and evening every day, you know, mentally it, it can be fatiguing because, you know, throughout the day, you're just always thinking about that second session. So you know, I do a fair bit of triathlon coaching these days. And, you know, if an athlete of mine does has have the opportunity to do that second session straight after or later in the morning, I encourage it. Yeah, it sounds like you need that coffee. I mean, if you're doing that amount of training, you're being a bloody triathlon coach, then you do it running your own business. What else are you doing? Because, I mean, and then you've got an 18-month-old. I think, like, you've still got too much time in your day i think you should still be doing something else yeah um 
yeah, well, you know, we're we're approaching seven thirty, so we're a bit, we're about twenty two minutes off my bedtime. So, um, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm definitely a morning person. Um, I'm a foul, not a now, that's for sure. <laughs> no, that's impressive. Awesome. Good work. All right. Well, we better let you go and have your uh, high protein dessert before you hit the sack. Uh, for another early morning training session. Thanks so much for your time, David. Um, by the time people listen to this, you'll be over in Tokyo and only a couple of days away from your race. So uh, best of luck with that. It's the 29th, wasn't it? Monday, the 29th August. of August um, at 8.30 um, Japan time. So that's that's the latest start time for the triathlon. So it could be a, a very steamy event, but I think the, uh, the heat's really going to um, even up the playing field. And I'm certainly well heat acclimated, so so bring it on. Yeah, awesome. All right, well, best of luck, Dave. Um, and yeah, well, listeners will be able to follow you in a few days from from hearing this. So go well. Yeah, good luck. Um, we'll be watching, and uh, we'll we'll put that on on our social media as well. So yeah, thank you for for coming on. Thank you. Watch me dance on race day. We'll watch you dance. Indeed. We'll be dancing with you. <laughs> So that was great. Thank you to David for yeah, sharing his time with us. Um, just, I guess, to give our listeners a, a nice um, little summary, I, I think, of what we've heard from our, um, our part A and then part B and just combining, I guess, that expert athlete um, commentary. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, we obviously had Dan Moore last week in episode 19A and he's really spoke about the fact that, you know, traditionally people have thought about protein as the thing for building bigger and stronger muscles, but really it's about repairing and remodeling bodies regardless of um, whether that's bigger, stronger, um, more endurance, whatever it is. Um, and obviously the different type of exercise that people will do will promote specific, you know, uh, repair and adaptation of the body in various ways um, and so not all of those are just about getting bigger and stronger so from that perspective protein sort of drives the adaptations that we have to training regardless of whether you're running cycling swimming um, or, or lifting weights in the gym that the the fundamentals sort of underlying those are the same just the particular responses you get will be different depending on the different type of exercise that you do um, and so from that perspective you know protein is equally important for um, for runners, cyclists and triathletes as it is for people lifting weights in the gym and trying to get bigger and stronger. Um, I guess the added complication with endurance exercise as we, we discussed in last week's episode is you can get to the stage um, where you actually start breaking down some of the proteins in your body to use those amino acids as a fuel source as well. Um, and so, you know, you end up using those and so you need to replace those plus you know, what you need from a, from an adaptation perspective. So in some ways, actually, the requirement for uh, endurance athletes for protein and can be as much, if not even greater than it is for people doing weight training. Um, in terms of, I guess, what's ideal and, and recommended, it's probably about, you know, 1.6, maybe a little bit more. There certainly doesn't seem to be any harm in having extra, apart from the fact it's just more calories that may or may not be necessary, um, but 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. So multiply that by your body weight in kilos um, per day. 
Um, and then the optimal timing of that is to kind of split that into probably four or five doses over the day, sort of evenly spread out if, if possible. Uh, and that equates to about 0.3 to 0.4 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight per meal or, or snack. Um, across the day and, and the reason for that is if you stack all your protein into one meal at a time there's only so much um, protein your body can use within that time frame uh, and so the rest will simply be shunted off to, to be used as an energy source because there's no other way of storing it for later um, and so you're yeah, having those serves you know three four five hours apart seems to be uh, about right we do, you know, we still don't know exactly the perfect timing but that that seems to be about right um, and then I guess uh, when we look at the different types of proteins, um, you know, the animal-based proteins seem to have maybe a slightly better response, uh, but the general consensus over time as we stop studying just you know, pure protein powders and move towards studying actual foods and, and eventually hopefully into studying whole meals is that those differences in the types of proteins are probably smaller than we first thought. Uh, and in fact, probably not something we need to be too worried about, except for maybe if you only eat plant-based foods, you know, vegan diet or, or a very heavily plant-based diet, then maybe a little bit more protein, maybe 10 or 15% more um, might be useful in terms of um, trying to offset the effect that um, the, the different types of protein within plant foods have compared to, to animal-based foods. But it's certainly very much achievable with a plant-based diet as well. Uh, and then I guess in today's episode with Dave, we, we talked a lot about the, the practical implementation of that and, and how you can get that into um, breakfast, lunch, dinner and snacks. Uh, and sometimes it's using supplements and things just from a convenience point of view. Uh, but a lot of the time it can be just through normal food. And you know, if you back your training onto a, a meal or a snack that you would have had anyway, um, there's no need necessarily to add in specifically protein post-training because you need to have a protein post-training. It just becomes the next meal um, that's timed after that. You can choose to have one just before bed because there's a long period of time overnight. Um, but again, that sort of four to five serves um, is fine. And having that, whether it's a big training day or a rest day, because that process of adaptation is still going on the next day after a big training session as well. Um, so it makes sense to, to continue to have that protein, even though it might be a, a rest day or an easy day from a, a training perspective. Um, I won't go through all, uh, I guess, the different sort of foods and suggestions that Dave had. People can go back and, and listen to those, but obviously there's uh, a lot of different options that you have, um, both animal and plant-based, um, varying from you know elaborate meals through to you know convenience things that you can throw in a bag and take with you. So um, there's, there's always an option there. I guess it's just a matter of being conscious of that protein at each meal and snack and, and planning ahead for that. Yeah, and I guess like, you know, if people want to kind of have a play and just see how their diet potentially is going, um, they can even, you know, often you and I um, probably use, you know, my Easy Diet Diary app just because that's a, I mean, it's a free app for people to use and then whoever, if we're working with them, they can easily email that to the dietitian so we can have a closer look at it. But I think the thing, the reason we kind of like that app is because it's based on, you know, foods from Australia and nutrition database and it's got really good quality control, but it can just be a bit of an awareness thing for people and, you know, we don't always know how much protein is in food. So you can enter that in and just sort of see, you know, or how am I doing for brekkie and, and what have you. And, um, and uh I think we've also got probably a protein um, fact sheet on our Sports Dietitians Australia website too, Alan, but 
you know, maybe we can also put just a little infographic up down the track and mm. on that as well. If our listeners are wanting that, just give us a shout out and, and let us know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, yeah, it, it's an interesting topic. It's one that I think either people are really obsessed with to the point where they're, they're overly obsessed with protein and yeah. can go into minutiae that's not necessary no. or quite the opposite. Yep. They just don't even think about protein um, and yeah. potentially missing out on some benefit there from having more regular protein throughout the day. So I think it can go both ways. Yeah, exactly. Just having a bit of an awareness can can be good if, if, you, if you're needing. So mm. Yeah. yeah. So I yeah. think coming back to that question of, you know, do I need more protein? Well, it depends how much you're eating already. Um, and so there's the, the quantity, but also that, that timing, I think, is a, an important point that I think a lot of people miss out on or, or don't realise. Yeah. Yeah. So as Dave said, and we see a heap is, yeah, we can, I guess, as a generalisation, as, as typical Aussies, at least, we can kind of have a lot of that protein in the evening and back end it rather than have that nice distribution yeah yep. uh, so in terms of just our, our social media you can follow us on uh, instagram facebook twitter um, at the long munch and you can listen to us on all your popular platforms at the long munch please yell out at us like any questions there is no silly question um, and we would love to just help answer them or talk about them um, we really want to tackle things that you guys are talking about, um, yeah. you guys and girls. So. Definitely. And I think there might be some questions coming from this one about, you know, we talked about plant-based sources of protein and that is an episode we've got coming up soon is, is yes. around plant-based diets more broadly. So, yeah, that is, that's yeah. definitely one we're going to be tackling in the next Good. few weeks. Yeah, yeah. perfect. And uh, so I guess with our next episode, we are up to 20A. And we are talking about a really exciting topic, Alan. I could not do without this in my life. Do you want to tell our listeners what we are talking about? Yeah. Because I am just yeah. too excited. Well, episode, yeah, you're right, 20A. Um, do I need to stop drinking coffee to get the benefits of caffeine? I'm sure there's a lot of people out there praying that the answer is no. Um so it is one of those things that gets talked about a lot is, you know, if I'm going to specifically plan caffeine, you know, before a race uh, or an event of some sort, do, should I, you know, stop drinking coffee or, or having any form of caffeine in the days leading up to that? Um, because if I'm a habitual caffeine user, do I then no longer get the benefit of taking caffeine on race day? Um, so I think it's a really big question that a lot of people ask and people are unsure about. There's kind of a lot of myths and misconceptions around this kind of topic and a lot of rumours. Um, so we're going to get someone who's done some research in this area, uh, Dr Chris Irwin from Griffith University uh, up in Queensland, to um, fill us in on, on answering that question. And um, you, some of the listeners will recall um, Associate Professor Ben Desbro, also from Griffith, uh, was on one of our earlier podcasts talking about beer and he talked about the fact that they looked at caffeine, alcohol and, and cannabinoids. Um, with you know, and We had Ducky McCartney on who, who's done some of that cannabinoid stuff, started working, um, did her PhD with Ben and Chris. So, um, so Chris works with Ben at Griffith um, and has done a lot of this work in, in caffeine. So it'd be great to, to get his perspective on that and uh, try and answer what I think is a, a very common uh, question that people are searching for an answer for. Yeah, I'll probably like only continue talking to him if he says the answer that I'm 
wanting. <laughs> um, so if I go a bit quiet, Alan, after he answers it. Yeah, well, I'll have to keep talking because I don't drink coffee. Yeah. So yeah. Well, I've got nothing against caffeine. Don't get me wrong. I just don't like coffee. So, um, But, yeah, I mean, they've done some really interesting caffeine research over the years, and we'll, we'll talk a bit about some of the other stuff they've done as well. They've published um, the only paper that's actually analysed the caffeine content of the entire Nespresso pod range. Um, yes. They went to, I think, 250 cafes and sampled the coffees and, and looked at the yes. variation in caffeine content when you buy a coffee mm. out. Um, and I think the, the results will surprise people. So we'll, we'll talk a bit about that as well. Yeah, that was really fascinating stuff. They did that, yeah, I remember a long time ago yeah. and I did a blog on it and, yeah, it was, yeah, it was super interesting. Mm. Um, yeah, really practical info for our listeners too. Definitely. Cool. Awesome. All right. So... If there's nothing further, I reckon we will leave our listeners to go and, if they're in Melbourne, keep on enjoying the COVID party, uh, lockdown party, um, staying safe uh, for everyone, though, I hope. Yes, but don't go to actual parties. No, please don't. Yes, not like those naughty doctors that went to the engagement party. Oh, yeah, I know. Mm. I saw that. Yeah, big fines. Mm. Big cool. fines. All right, see you guys. See you and later. Girls.